welcome to the Grounded Families podcast with me, Julia Goodall, psychologist and coach. This is a podcast for all families navigating life, love and relationships. We delve into our stories and experiences of family and how these go on to shape and change who we are. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to today's episode. My guest today is the lovely Penny Windsor. She's a single mum of two, a writer and a photographer. In this episode, we talk about her journey into being a carer, both in her childhood to her mum and again in adulthood, becoming a mum to both a disabled and a non-disabled child. Penny is so warm and generous in her experiences and in her learnings as a carer, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. She just wants yes. to introduce you properly. So Penny, we we haven't actually met. So, um, but yeah, I've read your book and just followed your work online for ages, sort of dipping in and out. But um, as I understand, you're a photographer and a writer um, and right. a mum to two kids. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and a bit of your background? Sure. Well, um, my children are now um, 11 and 9 tomorrow. Um, oh, wow. And I'm a, yeah, yeah tomorrow. <laughs> um, and then um, I'm a single parent and I uh, was born and raised in Australia, but I've been living in London for about 20 years now. Okay. Um, so I live over the other side of the world from, from my family. Mm. Um, and my eldest son, Arthur, who is 11, is autistic and has learning difficulties. Um, and we've known that he had differences probably from around two-ish something like that and he was diagnosed at three um and a little uh, me I have been a professional photographer for 15 or 16 years now um and I'm now also a writer um so aside from the book I do a little bit of journalism and I'm now working on some other writing projects as well oh so exciting I'm so happy you've dived more into writing because this was just so beautiful I think oh um, thank you. I think a topic like this has a potential to either go one way like as a memoir or as quite a textbooky feel and somehow you just manage to do all of those things and make it accessible and I just think well, it's unusual. Well I really was really clear from the beginning I didn't want to write a straight memoir. I wasn't particularly mm. interested in my own story but what I was interested in is how my own story relates to the context of the wider context of caring. Um, and so for me, the book was an excuse to really speak to a lot of other carers and do the research into caring. Um, but from, but really, I, you know, as a reader, what you want, I think, from an author more than anything is to understand how they fit into the story as well. Yes. And so I knew that my side, my part of the story was important in terms of, um, of trust with the reader as well like knowing mm. what perspective that I that I come from and I think that's really and I guess I should it's probably a good point time to say that I've been a carer twice not just as a parent but also to mm. my mum when I was a teenager and I think that was the point at which I understood how my experience as a as a carer when I was a teenager mm. has affected how I have supported my son as a parent um, and how those things are interlinked and how much I have in common with other carers of all kinds that made me really understand that this was not a memoir that I was interested in mm-hmm. writing, but, um, but a, sort of a nonfiction book that explored the ideas around caring. Um, I think often being a parent to a disabled child is talked about separately to all of these other 
mm, instances true. of caring that happen yeah. in our lives. And I don't think actually, I think actually that we have, a, I have a huge amount in common with other carers of all kinds, people supporting their partners or mm. supporting their parents long-term. Um, so I made the decision in the book as well to focus on more long-term situations rather than short-term ones. Although I think anyone in a short, short-term, and by short-term, I mean maybe a year or two, um, okay. would still gain a lot from um, from the book, but I decided to not have that as the main focus. Mm-hmm. The main okay. focus is people in quite long, long situations. Okay. And uncertain in the sense that you don't know a trajectory of, of caring in terms of what it would mean. Will, will you care for this person forever or is yes. there, okay. All right. Is there progressive yeah, disease think, involved? Oh, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And that was the, yeah, that was the other thing I chose to focus on um, mm. disability and chronic illness that isn't going anywhere. Yeah. So um, either is progressive and is going mm. to escalate to the point where the person dies or yes. otherwise is just going to remain unchanged and is a lifelong yeah. disability. Yeah. They okay. were the kind of two main focuses. So there are some instances of elderly care in there, but they're more things like Alzheimer's and dementia rather than just yes. simply end of life care. Sure. Um, although obviously those are very important things and things that we should be talking about. I decided mm. to make the focus the um, kind of long-term effect of being a carer. Mm. Um, and obviously the main point of the book is not to explore every kind of every different kind of situation um, because every single situation is unique um, Mm. partly because of our unique relationships that we have with the person that we support but also Mm. because each different type of disability or chronic illness is going to have its own unique challenges as well Mm. Um, but I did want to give a spread I did want to give um, a kind of broader spread of of what it's like to be in different kinds of situations yeah and you definitely did that um can you say a bit about your mum and how that has helped you in terms of of caring for Arthur um what what are the lessons that you carried across or what are the things that girded you for for what you experience now well, um, my mum was very well when I was young and it wasn't until I was about 11 that she started to become unwell. Um, and it started firstly with panic attacks and that then led and very severe panic attacks, I should say, like not being able to leave the house panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that moved on to um, a men- mental breakdown and very um, severe periods of depression. So probably by the time I was about 13, I was really giving her a huge amount of support Um and like with most people who are doing that when they're very young, I didn't know that's what I was doing. I yes. was just being a daughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had two brothers as well, one of whom was away at school, another one who was in the house. And my parents were divorced by this point. And my dad was mostly okay. living in another country. He was in and out, coming back to see us, but he wasn't He wasn't in the country most of the time. Okay. So I think um, this, so gradually over time, our responsibilities as children took um you know, took on more and more. And that was mm. partly looking after ourselves and making sure we got to school, making sure we did our homework and everything that, that without supervision, all those sorts of things. Mm. But also it, it, um, I took on a lot of responsibility of supporting, emotionally supporting my mum. So being someone that sat by her bed every single evening and listened to her worries and made sure she ate and took medication and, and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, but how it affected me, um, I think in a couple of ways, one really, really important way that affected me was that um, I was very fortunate. My mum was really open about what she was going through. And that obviously had its ups and its downs um, because I was quite young. Yeah, very young. But what it meant was that um, 
that I there was no mystery. I don't think about really what had happened mm-hmm. to my mum. I think when a parent has mental health problems, sometimes they're very hidden from mm-hmm. children. And um, and my mum died when I was twenty-two, and there was no question about what had happened to her. I knew yeah. what had happened to my mum, and. I knew that I didn't want the same things happening to me. And my mum had made it really clear throughout my teenage years that she had really regretted not looking after her mental health earlier. Um, and that she certainly, her, she was convinced that that perhaps it wouldn't have gotten as bad as it had if she hadn't ignored her own needs. Mm-hmm. And um, not to say that, you know, we can ever predict what will happen if we behave differently, but that was certainly a belief that she had, that she hadn't cared for herself in the way she should have when okay. things first started to go wrong for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing I took with me was the lessons that she had learned and the regrets okay. that she had. Okay. Um, and I really took that into motherhood right from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think that it's sort of in the way of, of just making sure that I um, understood that that my own needs were equal to those of my children. Um, and that didn't mean that they weren't always first, because, of course, when your children are very young and have very high needs, they do often come first. Yeah. But, um, but that um, once their kind of immediate acute needs were met, that I also had a duty to, to care for myself. And that is my responsibility as a mother, because yeah. what my brothers and I went through with my mum was ultimately very unfair on us and not that that was my mother's fault but it was all the ultimate um, I guess result of a mother not being well is that the children her children are not cared for so I think right from the beginning of motherhood I've had a sense of responsibility to care for myself in a way that I know some of my friends have really struggled Mm. to so that's probably like Exactly. And I think Mm. that's probably the biggest gift I got from supporting my mum. And then also, I think just understanding that, you know, um, that that life throws things in our path that we cannot control. Mm. Um, I think I had to read, I very much had to relearn that that again when my son was diagnosed. That was really, it was really difficult to be put back in that situation where everything felt very out of control and that there wasn't a lot I could do. I think as carers, one of the things that can be really challenging is to be witnessing um, someone you love struggle so much and Mm -hmm. you can't control it. You can be there to support, but you can't Mm -hmm. control it. Um, And I had done it before. And I think at first when my son was diagnosed, in a way, it was almost possibly more overwhelming for me because I had been a carer before and I knew what it meant. You knew what was coming in some way. I knew what Mm. was coming, even though the situation was very different to have somebody so very dependent on you. Um, I had been there before in that, in a way. Mm. So at first it was possibly more scary, (laughs) Um, a bit more overwhelming, but very quickly I realized that I had gained so much resilience from my experience with my mum, And I think, having been in that situation where it's extremely challenging both emotionally and physically um and then you know the worst thing happened which was that she ended up dying and yet my life had not fallen apart I missed her hugely Mm -hmm. I still do and but you know I still have a life I still have um a life that I love in fact and so I think 
that having been through that experience before of having something quite massive and disruptive happening in your life and knowing that you go on to survive and have yes. relationships and have yeah. lots of wonderful things in your life as well. I think mm. that was the thing that I had at the beginning was knowing I'd, I'd done something really hard before and I was mm. okay. Yeah. And you survived that. And that's also, that's something that struck me throughout the book is those contradictions, just constantly the contradictions that came through around there's A is true and B is true and not necessarily at the ta- at the same time, but they are both true. Um, and I love that. And that just struck me again and again and again. And, and all the kind of ways that you discussed this in terms of your mom and in terms of relationships, in terms of relationship with your kids, in terms of being a carer, there are so many contradictions. And I think that those contradictions are important to flesh out. That's kind of where the the magic is in the sense that this thing is hard and also it's wonderful and um, this experience is hard, but also this is my son and um, how incredible is he? Do you know what I mean? I love it's that. It's really so true. Through. I think as well, we don't, I don't know if this is something because of the world we live in, which is trying, I guess, the way we all communicate online and stuff. Um, and even in mainstream media, it's all become very binary. Yeah. You know, um, if one thing is true, then another thing can't be. But that's yeah. just not how life is. You know, life exactly. is full of paradoxes. And mm-hmm. that to me was the most important thing about the book was to kind of really mm-hmm. look at um, and uncover some of those paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just like I think being a mother can be the best and worst thing that's ever happened to you in a way. And it's hard to say that because sometimes, Mm -hmm. and certainly this year, I've had these feelings of, um, you know, because so much has been put on our shoulders um, and we have to, we we, we can't share our responsibilities in the same way that we have been traditionally been able to share our responsibilities with schools and with um, paid support and with even just with friends Mm -hmm. and our community. And I think, um, you know, that this year has been a reminder of, of that, what it means to be a parent in that way, um, mm. that sometimes actually it does all come back to you entirely, which is scary. It's really scary. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but also at the same time, you know, would I wish it away no, I don't think I would. And that's the paradox, isn't it? Exactly. Um, I definitely have had moments when um, I've sort of felt like, oh, gosh, I feel like I need to tell every childless person I know um, to really <laughs> think carefully about <laughs> that they have children after this year because, um, know. you know, take pandemics into account and all that responsibility as well, mm-hmm. which sounds terrible. But, yeah, definitely at the yeah, hardest moment. True. It, I think only yeah. after having children do I... I have mixed feelings when people say they're expecting a baby and part of me goes kind of cringes (laughs) and because there's, they're in store for so much and some of it will be good and some of it will just be heart wrenching and difficult and all of it will be unpredictable. We just have no idea what's coming. Um, Exactly. And that's interesting. I had that exact conversation with a friend of mine whose um, child is similar age to mine and we've known each other for years and years and years and, um, and once he received an autism and ADHD diagnosis much later than my son, I think he was in school age when it happened, okay. but sort of explained a lot of challenges that they'd had over the years. And I remember her saying to me, sometimes, you know, when a friend announces a new pregnancy, I just feel so sorry for them yeah. because they have no idea what's coming. Yeah. And some of it is wonderful, like you're saying, some yeah. of it is like, you know, rips your heart out completely because mm-hmm. you can't 
protect your child from everything you can't exactly. um they're going to go through a huge amount that you can't control and that's mm. really difficult and not to say that she has any regrets about being a parent but she just now knows um the the challenges that it can be um and Absolutely. i'm i wouldn't be surprised if um if parents who've had children who have become very ill for instance probably have similar mm. feelings um it's not yeah. that we would wish it away it's just we know how complex it is and that no one can prepare you for that. No one can warn you. Do you know what I mean? That it feels like something that you can't warn people off about because it just seems bizarre and inappropriate. Um, but I think it is one of those things that you only really get when you get it. And I assume it's the same as being a carer for somebody that um, you just don't get it until 2 a.m. in the morning. Um and that's something also that struck me about you and speaking about joy and trying to connect with um, your compassionate self when you talk about having to do these early wake-ups. And I had to wake up the other day at half past five and I thought of you because I was so grouchy. And I just thought, shush, Julia, this is, you know, this sort of awareness. And not to silence myself, but just to be aware that I, I don't have that in my mind. We just often become very insular. And there is some kind of camaraderie in knowing that that people are going through difficult things, that it's not just you, and far, far more difficult things, in fact. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I would say don't use that self, don't use that to kind of beat yourself up. No, I think this, but... I really worry um, sometimes, and that's what can make talking about being a carer really difficult, because of mm -hmm. course, the last thing I would want is for any of my friends who I have open conversations with about some of the challenges going on in my house mm -hmm. to feel like oh I'm not allowed to feel like I'm having a hard time because mm -hmm. my situation isn't like theirs so um as much as I think it's so important that we talk openly I think also we need to be so um careful not to beat ourselves up for our situations not being mm -hmm. the hardest they could possibly be I mean I am grumpy when I get woken up in the middle of the night I try really hard to work on self-compassion <laughs> as you saw in the book and sometimes I do it better than others um but yeah for instance you know my son is at school at the moment and nobody else's children really are and um and it's really it's still things are still really challenging at the moment for a variety of reasons because I think you know having a disabled child in a pandemic is really not the same as having a non-disabled child in one mm -hmm. so even though I have the support of school it's still things are extremely challenging at the moment mm -hmm. um but it feels there has been lots of times where I'm like I'm not allowed to say anything I'm not allowed to complain because I have the support of school at the moment when I know mm -hmm. that that's what a lot of people desperately need and aren't allowed to have okay. and then I have to catch myself and be like yes but it's also okay that it's still hard Exactly. It's one of those um, contradictions. Yeah. Yeah. It's this. like a, just allowing, allowing yeah. for the feelings is yeah. so important, I think. Um, yeah. So even though, of course, I wrote this book, I'm constantly having to go back and remind myself because, you know, when we get thrown into these new situations, I wrote the book pre-pandemic. I was just finishing the final edits at the beginning of lockdown last okay. year. Um, and so I almost have had to revisit it because of how extreme this last okay. year has been and it because mm. of the more extreme situations I've been in mm. um even than before I wrote the book um yeah. yeah I've almost I have to keep reminding myself it's all a lot of the stuff I talk about is about a, being a practice rather than yes. being a knowledge that you kind of internalize and just understand and achieve sure. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's like that cyclical learning that you keep coming back and going oh I have to learn this again <laughs> And again, and again, true. and again. It's true. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I wanted to ask a bit about relationships also and how, because, okay, something that struck me a lot about your story around your mum is this um, fierce independence that you have. Um, and I think that served you in many ways, but I also wondered, and something that I relate to, that my mum had been ill um, as when I was a teenager and she, she's alive. She continues to be quite ill. And um, something that I really related to is around that independence and something that I've struggled with as a consequence is kind of what I'd call toxic independence that feels mm-hmm. like it's really difficult to ask for help and to accept help. And that's something that I have to keep coming back to. And I wondered whether you'd experience anything similar. Oh my goodness. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, it took me a while to realize that it was often a problem Okay. Um, rather than just a good thing, because I think yeah. it's well, aside from um, the fact it served us both very, very well, you know, like it's, you know, our independence has served us. Um, if you go through a period in your childhood where you're the only one that you can depend on, really, I mean, I I wasn't ultimately because I did have the, um, ultimately had the support of my wider family, my mum's sisters and my dad, but they just weren't on hand, you know, yes. so day to day I had yep. to rely on myself. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't want to paint the picture that I was completely on my own because I really wasn't, you know, um, but day to day I I was. And yeah. so it really did serve me well, my independence. You know, I did end up doing really well at school and I really was able to kind of pick myself up and look after myself. Um, and after my mum died, it served me well. I I was I've moved countries a number of times. I moved to London. I moved to New York. I went, moved places without jobs and found them right away. Mm. And I kind of, you know, I've always been able to just get on with it and and look after myself um but we also um live in a culture where we are very praised for being hyper independent you know dependence is really looked down upon in our culture Mm -hmm. and this is I think a lot of what I talked about with the idea of having to come to terms with my son dependence um and his what is going to be lifelong dependence to some degree um because we do live in a culture that looks really really down on that um and so I think um you know, until I had my son, I didn't have to confront my extreme independence um, and really look into it. Um, So that was the huge challenge for me, I think, particularly initially, but in an ongoing way, I think this past year has, has, that's been actually one of my big challenges of the past year has been, um, has been what, you know, I, um, I I took a long time, especially after, um, um, getting divorced of having to really do some dig deeping into my penance and realize that I can't we can't function properly as a family if I am extremely independent okay. we just can't yeah um, we need the support of schools we've got two different mm-hmm. schools for my children um what my son's school supplies in terms of support goes above, above and beyond what regular school does um okay. and even just things like you know I can't get two different children to two different schools that are quite far apart at the same time and so I rely on local authority providing transport for my son Um, I rely on carers to be able to take my son so I can do things with my daughter because he physically can't do a lot of the things that she needs to do Um, and even with support a lot of it's still really challenging it's certainly very logistically challenging a lot of things like even it sounds really simple but you know 
having swimming lessons for my daughter when um, it's extremely challenging just because I have to organize the care for my son because he can't come into the building when she's swimming because he would want to swim, but they don't allow disabled children to swim when the non-disabled kids are swimming. And honestly, it just goes on and on. There's so many layers of, of difficulty when you have mm-hmm. two different children with two different needs. Yeah. So as a family, we're very dependent on lots of other people okay. and our community to function. And I think that's been um, what's been so highlighted this past year for me is that, you know, um, we can't just sort of hunker down in the house on our own for months on end. Um, it doesn't work. It really doesn't mm-hmm. work. And um, and I think that's what for me has been so scary about the past year is that, um is that I feel really, I feel really sad and I sometimes feel quite jealous of families still who can hunker down and not mm. rely on anybody else because it would be amazing to be able to do that um, mm. as much as I wish nobody was having to do that right now, obviously. It um, also keeps you but, connected, yeah, so I feel like- has kept you connected even in a pandemic. Like have there been good parts to that or has it just felt... Um, um, I think it's really highlighted our... It's really highlighted our vulnerability okay. as a okay. family, the pandemic. Mm. It's really okay. highlighted it. Just mm. for instance, my son is back at school again now um, for the winter term, but it was a week. The school didn't open initially and I had to okay. wait a week till they decided whether or not he would have a place. Okay. And so that Gosh. was a week of um, the beginning of the school term where, yeah, I just didn't know and um, – and, and we don't cope well when he's at home 24-7 because he doesn't cope well. So it's not just meeting his needs as they are. It's his needs increase and increase and increase and increase mm, okay. because he doesn't do well being shut up in a house. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it was a very, very frightening week waiting to see whether we mm. would be on the list because obviously there are a lot of children who need it. So we are certainly not the only family who desperately needed it at that school. So I think the pandemic for me has highlighted our vulnerabilities and um, how reliant you are on that system. Yeah. Okay. And we are reliant on a lot of different systems to function. Mm. And so when those systems shut down, um, <sighs> it really does affect our life mm. quite enormously. Um, and it does remind me why I do hate having to be dependent. Um, you know, this is really, it's scary being so dependent mm. on on other systems to function on society and stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's reminded me that I am dependent and I need to be in order for us to really function. Yeah. We really do need um, other systems and people in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been a huge challenge. And of course, so ironic that I had just written the book and everything. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I've had my biggest challenges have come literally in the wake of, of publishing the book. I think this year, for me has probably been the most challenging in my entire life, which um, you having read the book and Mm -hmm. (laughs) knowing the different challenges, I think just because it's when you already have um, background challenges happening in your family Mm -hmm. to kind of have this thrown on top is Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really, it's really added a whole nother layer. But Mm -hmm. I would say at the same time, I think I've probably been quite well prepared for it as okay. well at the okay. same time um and I think a lot of a lot of other carers but also a lot of disabled people have talked about this you know disabled people have been very adversely affected by the pandemic either, yeah. either because they've had to shield you know in death like for 10 months now many I know many yes. people who have literally been shielding for 10 months and mm-hmm. have not been outside their front door 
or because of the um, the lack of care towards disabled people. You know, I think it's been something like 60 to 7% of people who have died have been disabled. Um, and there's been very much a lack of care in terms of reporting yeah. um, around that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of disabled people felt very um, much like society's true colours are showing in terms of their lack of care towards mm-hmm. disabled people. So it's been extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say also on top of that, disabled people, and certainly all the ones I know, um, are unbelievably, because this is not their first challenge that they've, they've been through. And in fact, actually, I would say um, that most disabled people I know mentally have, are much more mentally prepared for something like this pandemic than mm-hmm. people who have never experienced that kind of extreme challenge before. So again, like I would say with my experience with my mum, followed by being a carer to my son, as much as it's really difficult and I look back on my teenage years and in some ways I wish it hadn't been so hard but in other ways I'm really grateful that it was really challenging because it helped prepare me for being a mother to a disabled child as well and so I think I you know I don't want to say it's a silver lining because I think a lot of that messaging can be quite um (laughs) yeah But I would say we gain, we gain as well as lose in mm-hmm. situations like this. And I'm certainly, I think all of us are probably gaining as well as losing sure. in the pandemic. I'm just struck by so many of those layers again that you speak about. And like you talked about swimming, is that in the situation we are at the moment that you are thinking about just, it feels like too many layers. So emotionally and the sense of Arthur needing to be outside or be out of that the house at least for a while and that feeling of kind of pressure cooker um needs just growing and growing and growing um and also just having no um no idea about how long this will be and and what it will mean long term um it, i feel it even in my chest hearing hearing about it and just thinking about a lot of it is mental load and um, emotional load that is invisible again and i think that that's something that comes up also in the book is this the invisible load that you can't explain to people without um feeling like you're saying this is too difficult when actually you're saying I'm doing it it's happening but it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly tiring and demanding um and again all of those things are true I think you've yes you've definitely described that really well I think um it even just having conversations these past couple of weeks with um, we're in mid-January now. I don't know when you're putting this out, but we're in mid-January now. So the last few weeks has been really awful for everybody, you know, Mm. in the UK. It's really, really awful for everybody. And um, I think it's, it can be difficult explaining, yes, the layer of challenges because they kind of come one on top of another. Um, um, You know, I guess we are coping. We are, you know, here we are (laughs) turning up every day, getting out of bed and we are coping. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not extremely challenging and it doesn't mean we don't, we aren't thinking, oh, hurry up and get easier, please. And just give Mm. us a bit of break, just give us a bit of a break. But um, it's the emotional load of caring. I think it's just the emotional load of motherhood. It's, it's sort of, it can be hard to articulate and it can be hard, um, you know, within, um, within relationships between two people when one of them is taking on a huge amount of the emotional mm. mental load and the other one isn't um I think that's one of the things that I hoped with the book that when carers read it that they feel um seen and I think mm. lots of carers don't connect with other carers um Why do you I think, think it's is? incredibly important I mean 
a lot of it is physical isolation. Um, You know, when you're in a really demanding caring role, sometimes you literally can't have the, you don't have the opportunity to. And I think particularly if you um, are supporting someone, maybe where it's a little bit of an unusual situation, I think, you know, some of the people I spoke to in the book were in their thirties and they were supporting a disabled partner who had become disabled very, um, very suddenly and had very high needs very suddenly due to, Mm -hmm. um, Uh, like a brain injury or something and I think you know in those situations it can be credibly isolating because everybody else you know is sort of just getting married and having young Mm -hmm. family and buying their houses and traveling and and you now are in a full-time caring role um and of course you want to be that person for your partner because you love them and you don't want to walk away but at the same time you don't also have much in common with the people in their 60s and 70s who are doing it for their partners yeah and so that like any group of people where maybe what you're doing is not in line with what your peers are doing it can be really really challenging Mm. um so I mean I think this is where the internet has been incredible because I know so many younger carers either young carers or you know just people who are younger are doing it rather than um you know in their 60s 70s and above um they have found you know, social media has been really wonderful, actually, for connecting with other people around the world who are in quite similar situations. Um, I think we really sometimes underestimate the need for us to have a community that is going through something similar. And it doesn't have, that community doesn't have to serve every purpose. They don't have to necessarily be your best friends or Mm. they don't even have to be in real life. They can be online, but to have somewhere to go where you don't have to explain every bit of backstory or you don't have to um, pretend Mm. to be in a better mood you're in or whatever it is and where you just know that the people know the situation you're in um whether or not you talk directly about it or not I think it can Mm. be incredibly powerful so important Uh, I think even again thinking of those layers and having to explain all of that to me and it's tiring to have to do that again and again and again and I imagine Mm. that that's also part of that isolation is as soon as you've done that track of of explaining that you are using I don't know energy that you just don't have Um, And I think when people are stretched, that becomes more difficult. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that can happen, which I wrote about, um, which people do very unknowingly, is they do other people um, isolate you by the way that they talk about you and your situation. Um, That comes across (laughs) with with, (laughs) tilted head. Yeah, the the head tilt. (laughs) The head tilt. Um, The pity that comes across. but, But of course, you know, Um, In a way, I don't blame people for it because, of course, sometimes this is completely new to them and they don't know how to respond to the information. Mm. Um, When I first, I remember when I first started talking open, more openly about my mum having died by suicide, at first it took me a really long time because I thought it was my responsibility to make sure that I didn't upset the other person. Um, And I didn't know what people could handle and what people couldn't handle in terms of information. And so I Mm. didn't talk about it. I also didn't want people to pity me or to also make assumptions about my mother because of the way she died. Um, and I was always very hyper aware that people would think she was a bad mother if they knew how she died um, because people don't understand mental illness very much. And, um, and then at some point I realized, I don't know when it was, maybe it was in my late twenties. I started realizing, Oh, it's not my responsibility to protect every single person that I speak to from information um obviously I didn't bring it up all the time I would read the situation and see but what I very quickly realized is if people asked genuinely asked questions about my mother Mm. um they were okay to hear some information and um 
And so it took me a while to realise that. But also um, what I realised, which what came from talking about my mum's experience and her death was that I realised actually it's a huge thing to be able to be the person that can really calmly and matter-of-factly talk about quite a difficult situation. And I've had lots of people contact me over the years um, and saying and thanking me for talking on social media about my mum's suicide because they just, they can't do it yet. Okay. And they're really grateful for anyone who's able to mm-hmm. do that. Um, because I think when, when someone is able to put, has done, has processed that and has kind of emotionally processed, you know, that kind of, um, yeah. that kind of thing, it's been, you know, more than 20 years since my mom died now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of thinking and processing. It's not like it happened yesterday. <laughs> so yeah. I do feel really comfortable talking and writing about it. And it feels like actually now it's kind of my responsibility to do that, to help other okay. people who are um, maybe new to that situation mm. and aren't at a place yet and do need to hear somebody talk about their experiences of losing someone that they love very much to suicide mm. um, in a way that is, you know, in the way that some people are able to talk about cancer. You know, I think exactly. yeah. 30, 40, 50 years ago, people didn't talk about people dying of cancer either. Mm. Um, now that's something we are able to be open about. Um, mm. That's something that's changed. And I think um, that can only happen with people doing it. And we with people being conversations. Mm, absolutely and I love that it's like you said it's like a model for people to be able to say this is what it looks like this is what it sounds like I'm talking about this and I'm okay and um, and the language as well the language we use is incredibly important and so using the language the giving other people the language to be able to talk about it Mm, comfortably yeah I as I say my mum is alive but um I relate so much to that idea of having conversations with people. And when we grew up, we grew up in a small town that was really an incredible community. And um, we had lots of support from from people around us. But there was lots of, and I think because I was younger as well, and it maybe appeared, I appeared more vulnerable because of age, like similar age to you. And um, lots of that sort of head tilting that I didn't know what to do with at that stage. But only as an adult, I feel like, okay, this is yours and I'm handing it back to you. I don't need this, the, the pity, do you know what I mean? But as a, as a teenager, I felt it in my body and I felt there was kind of shame around it and, and sometimes even disgust, but always that isolation yes. of just feeling like, oh, I, you just don't know what's happening for me. You've just demonstrated that. Yes, I think this is so important that we understand that when um, – when somebody tells us something very difficult that's happening in their life, often what pity is, is just handing it straight back to them. Like you've shared something with me Mm. that's really difficult and vulnerable and Mm. I'm just going to push it right back to you and (laughs) give you back that load again. And that's what pity is. It's Mm. about um, the 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 person on the receiving end of, of, you know, a difficult conversation or shared information saying, I can't hold that. That's too difficult for me. I can't cope with it. So I'm just going to push that back away from me. And Mm -hmm. that's what pity is. And I don't, I'm not saying that people do it maliciously or deliberately. They really don't. They don't know they're doing it. They're doing it very unconsciously, I think, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to sit here and blame people for doing it. But that is what it is. And I think if you really want to support the person who's sharing something really difficult with you whatever Mm -hmm. it is you know whatever the situation is their worries about their job or money or their relationship or their something about their children 
when you can just accept the information as it's coming to you mm. and listen without pushing it back mm. again it's you're doing a huge service to the person that you're listening yeah. to I think absolutely and I think um yeah you're you're sharing you're then sharing that load rather than increasing it I think it's so interesting isn't it what you're saying about share how that pity turns into can turn into shame mm. as well when people put pity on you um it can turn into shame within ourselves and that's just more for us to carry even yeah more. that feeling of oh this is I think you said somewhere as well um just thank god this is not happening to me there was something yeah. that's sort of distancing and I think that's again a normal human thing that we do is we mm-hmm. other people when we're frightened and I think it's a yeah. normal kind of psych- psychological thing that we do to keep ourselves safe but it's so painful for the people on the other side of that and I think yeah, yeah to be aware of that. and I think we need to be aware of not giving it to them and if that's how we feel just noticing that's how we feel yeah, sure you know I think it's like um that thing of well that wouldn't happen to me because of xyz mm-hmm. you know rationalizing it in our mind and it's a very like you're saying it's a very yeah. normal human thing to do but um we just need to be careful not to push that onto other people and I think again coming back to disabled people during the pandemic this is what's been happening to them you know well it's okay because all these people who are dying, um, you know, they have underlying conditions, you know, and there's that constant justification thing, which, um, which as a disabled person, you know, many of whom have very long lives ahead of them, if they don't get COVID, just because they're not perfectly healthy, it doesn't mean they're not going to have a long, rich, varied life, Mm. you know, to kind of say, oh, it's okay, because you know yeah. um underlying conditions. I think really hard exactly these are human beings it's not just yeah. you know uh, yeah I find exactly. that really hard to listen to and I think even if you have those thoughts let's not beat ourselves up for having the thought oh it's okay because I don't have you know a condition that's going to make me really vulnerable you know just don't share that with people <laughs> I think notice the thoughts that you're having yeah. but don't necessarily don't open say them, them out loud say them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely Oh gosh, I think, and, and coming back to something you said about the systems, I think that's so important because of all the kind of rhetoric that's come out and the narrative around these, I don't even know another word for it, but it's like these extra people that haven't mattered that as long as the healthy people don't get sick. And I, I found that really disturbing. But also, like you said in the beginning, something about how our systems behave and how they um, think about people, how they classify us and w- how we're considered useful if we are productive. Or, or less mm. productive and I think that that that's also painful to witness kind of politically in terms of like the people who run this country and I imagine that that is also incredibly painful to to realize that the people who run this country are they firstly have no idea what is happening for me and secondly they're not wildly interested in, in finding out and that's kind of dislocation and isolation again for me just feels really mm. profound I think we have it in so many layers of our society, you know, even just the fact of, um, you know, I come from a country that's, um, let's say, has had a lot of very white supremacist immigration policies over the years um, and very, um, very overt ones. I think it was until there was an actual white Australia immigration policy in place until 1976, I believe. It was, you know, they did not let non-white people into the country. Um, 
And I think just even the conversation around, say, for instance, um, immigration and about usefulness, mm. you know, I think it's even really damaging for people to say, well, it's okay because that family ended up, you know, sending their children to Oxford and now they're doctors and so they're allowed to be here. And again, oh, it's like yeah. even when it's meant well, mm. it's really damaging to talk about our worth mm. in terms of our productivity. And I think, again, coming back to that whole independence thing, it's been, that's been, so such I guess my life's work on myself shall we say to get away from that and I feel like I really need to do it for my son I really do because mm. he may never work for money I don't mm. know like you know he he may never I think I, I suspect he will never live completely independently he may end up living independently from me but I suspect it will be in a supported way um so you know what you know who am I to put value on on productivity mm-hmm. if I need to teach him if I'm here teaching my son that he has mm-hmm. value then I can't place value on on productivity exactly it's really hard because it's very pervasive in our society Absolutely. so um I don't think we should sit here and say you know we're all fools for thinking that way or no. um you know I think I think we have to acknowledge the society that we've all been raised in and that we're all surrounded by. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that I think I had seen missing from the conversation around ableism was that we need to do better, but we also need to acknowledge that this is how we were all raised. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is a reason that a lot of us have these views that productivity is um, what makes us valuable as humans. Yeah. Um, so we have to acknowledge that almost before we can start to loosen and get rid of those ideas. Mm. And that was really important to me because I think, um, you know, particularly parents of disabled children, when their children are first diagnosed, this is often the very first contact they're having with disability in their entire lives. And so they we need to learn quick. We need to learn really, really quickly. Mm. And we need to learn from disabled people. But we also need to acknowledge that we've been, we've, we've been raised in a world that hasn't valued disabled people. Mm. And we need to acknowledge that in order to be able to overcome those yeah. thoughts and feeling as well. And all I that think. unlearning that will happen, and I'm sure for the rest of your life and the rest of everyone's lives, is that so that sort of programming lasts for a very long time and takes a lot of energy. Yeah, to... and we need to be very active in Absolutely. dismantling. And that's that also learning. what I loved about because this is a book and you could I could sit quietly and and look at some of those things on my own and my own ableism, my own like internalized messaging around how we speak about people with disabilities. And even thinking about my mum and just never even considered that she is a person living with disability I just have never ever considered that which is is quite hard as a psychologist it's it's interesting because I think in a way as a society we kind of um, view disability in a certain way Mm. we see we see it as wheelchairs and mobility aids and and physical disabilities Um, Mm. I think um more, I think that more and more understanding is happening that disabilities are much, obviously much broader than that. Um, mm. But also, you know, they include um, a lot of mental illnesses, although obviously not everyone with a mental illness will consider themselves disabled, but sure. many people with a mental illness will consider themselves disabled because of how um, it challenges their everyday, everyday 
kind of um, day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in general, considering that 20% of the world's population is disabled, it is quite incredible that we don't have mm-hmm. these conversations more openly and they are happening more now. But, um, but I feel like, you know, even without a disabled family member, which of course we will all have disabled family members at some point, just because as we age, you know, we naturally, you know, are more prone to disabilities as we age. Um, We all need to do this work, Mm. all of us. Yeah, that unraveling. But, you know, it's also challenging and it's hard and it makes you look at some quite sort of shameful parts and thinking uh, these are parts that I've never looked at. I've just never interrogated them. And that doesn't make you a bad person, but that these things, like you say, are so pervasive, but they're not going to go away on their own. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think whenever we confront something we've never looked at before, it can be really challenging Mm -hmm. because it's just challenging to admit you've never thought about something that's maybe affects Mm -hmm. a huge amount of the population. And, you know, that's happening in all areas of our life around race Mm -hmm. and around gender um, and sexuality and all different things. You know, if you've never had to think about it before, it Mm -hmm. can be very shocking at first. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we need to get over ourselves (laughs) a little bit (laughs) and accept that it's quite hard work and do it. Yeah. 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 Um, do you mind if I ask a bit about how you share care with your ex-husband? Oh, sure. Um, that's fine. Yeah. The, I mean, it's, I guess it's been a bit more challenging this past year, but generally um, he spends every other weekend with the kids and he actually spends the weekend with them here in my house and okay. I leave. Okay. So the kids are always at home. Okay. Um, that's such and- a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it's had its own challenges over time, but um, but it's brought a stability to the children that so mm-hmm. far it's made any challenges that come up worthwhile. Okay. Um, the way I thought about it in the beginning was, you know, when it was challenging for me right in the beginning, having to kind of pick up and leave, mm-hmm. um, I just reminded myself, well, the kind of what I'm going through is what I would have expected my children to go through every other weekend. Okay. Um, yeah, and so I felt like I was taking on that so they didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that. it's not a situation that's going to work for everybody, but it's definitely one I would recommend people consider as an option if it looks okay. like, especially if you live in a really expensive city like London, <laughs> like we yeah. do. Um, you know, having two functioning family homes is incredibly challenging for lots of people. And so mm-hmm. for us, that was probably the other reason to do it was that my ex-husband doesn't have to have a a family home setup. Yeah. Yeah. For the kids. I, I love also that, I mean, and I don't know if this is intended, but there's the symbol of, although you've decided that you don't want to stay married, that there, there's something about him being allowed back into the home um, in, in front of your kids that says that he's always part of your family, that we are still a family just in a different yes. setting. I, yeah. I don't know if that's implied. I don't know. It's interesting because we haven't done it a different way, <laughs> but okay. um, but I would, I would say it's harder for him than it is for me Okay. in terms okay. of, and a lot of people assume it's the other way around, okay. that it's harder for me because I'm the one that has to leave mm-hmm. and that I'm the one that has him in my space um, okay. because it is very much my home. It's not really our home anymore. It's very much mm-hmm. become my home. Sure. Um, but I think it is, I think it is extremely challenging for him to have to come back okay. into what had been his home mm-hmm. before. So I'm certainly not suggesting it's easy for no. either of 
but at the same time it has um yeah like I said I think the benefits have really outweighed um the difficulties so far but you know it's not we started out we it's been how many years has it been five oh actually it's almost been six years it'll be six years in about a month um and we we've done it as a question mark indefinite we don't know so it was sort of never like okay this is the way it's always going to be yeah it's not a forever thing Mm. it was just like okay this is what's going to work for now Mm. and it's and it's something we might address you know okay in the future as well but it has meant the one one big upside for me personally has been that I do go on work trips occasionally and it has meant that I that my odd work trip that I go on for one or two nights you know Mm. um it doesn't disrupt the children because yeah. their routine stays exactly the same. Mm, um, add on they days. just have a different, they just yeah. have a different parent there. Okay. Um, and obviously with my son's needs as they are, that's been really important. Um, mm. Yeah. You can't yeah. just sort of chop and change what's happening all the Absolutely. time. And stuff, so. Yeah. And will he struggle with change in, in situation or change in routine? I mean, yes, okay. <laughs> just in okay. every possible way. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, even just um, things like um, uh, we've had so many transport changes over the past six weeks or so and, mm. um, and it's making life extremely difficult and that's just getting to and from school. Um, and that's, you know, the same school, the same house, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just with a few, um, it's very complicated. I won't go into it, but um, okay. eventually it will settle down. But, um, but yeah, and even things like being on holiday and then going back to school again, even though he needs to be in school to feel in routine and calm because he needs that real structure, he does mm-hmm. really well in structure, um, still that transition from holiday time to oh, school time. It's really difficult for kids. And, yeah. and even this, the transition from school to being at home can be tricky as well, even though mm-hmm. at the end of the term he's desperate for a break. You know, he really wants mm-hmm. to just hang out at home all day for a few days because he's really he's ready tired. to not be challenged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And school is challenging for him as much as he loves and needs the structure like any child at school, he's having things demanded of him and everybody mm. needs a break from that. So, yeah, so even the things that we really want, like going on holiday, is um, is challenging because of that change in routine and, um, and okay. stuff. So um, it doesn't mean it's not worth it. It is very much worth it. But again, <laughs> all the layers of yeah. planning and preparing. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and it's worth it for him and his experience. Um, you know, going away is very challenging for him but he gets a lot as well as finds it really hard. So it's something that, um, that that's another thing that's going to be, gosh, so interesting after all of this, he hasn't been away now for more, for more than a year. Cause we didn't, we don't tend to go away right in the middle of winter. So um, it's been more than away since he's more than a year since he's been away, which obviously has been the same for lots of families, but I don't, I don't know how it's going to be when we try to do it. In terms of like adjustment. It, yeah. it could take a really long time. And it spent, I spent years building up trips oh, away. Penny. And I would, um, and I'm, we, how we do it is we go away slightly more frequently, but for okay. short trips. So we'll go away to Easter and in May and in July. Okay. And then sometimes for a weekend in October, but I scatter a few and we might okay. go for three days just because it's quite intense being away it takes a lot of um energy to kind of constantly be vigilant keeping an eye on him because I don't necessarily can't keep him safe in quite the same way as I can in our house yeah um and so for my energy levels it's better to do that for three or four days sure. um and also just then financially 
then we can do it more frequently rather than go yeah. away for one week or two weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the frequency of those trips were really important to kind of keep him um, in the routine of regularly leaving okay. every few, three or four months, go and stay somewhere else. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Hopefully, I'm that. hoping this summer we'll be able to go away. I mean, we only mm-hmm. go away in the UK at the moment anyway with him, but I'm hoping <laughs> that he'll be okay and back into it but probably we'll just start with one weekend and we go but it will probably take it could take me a couple of years to build that up Gosh, again, yeah so, and yeah, again these so are the invisible parts you know yeah that's that people don't see or don't think about um yeah that's yeah kind of it to share are there yeah. things are there things that you could say to people in terms of um I don't know, I guess a request or a wish um, in the way that people would interact with you and your son in terms of asking questions or in terms of when you're in public, what are things that could be helpful and connecting that you don't feel isolated? Well, well, in terms of, in terms of strangers. So if for instance, Mm -hmm. um, you were to witness um, parents struggling with their child in public mm-hmm. um, it can be nice to sometimes offer some help but also what I would say is please don't be offended if they're either don't hear what you're saying or don't listen mm-hmm. or a little bit short with you because I know there have been times where I've been in the park and my son's having a full-on meltdown and I'm trying to get him to leave because I know he's not safe there anymore yeah. um, and people are very kindly coming along and asking if I need a hand and I've gone oh no it's okay it's okay because I'm fully fully concentrating on him and trying to keep mm-hmm. him safe that I can't sort of turn around and be like oh thank and you explain. so much and that's really nice <laughs> and explain it to him because yeah. actually what's happening is he's not safe mm-hmm. and I just have to kind of concentrate on keeping him physically yeah. safe and so I would say if you do ever offer help don't be offended if they're a little bit short with you because they might not be able to give you sure. the attention um and so I think if people are understanding about that and just brush it off, if you have one bad encounter with a parent of a disabled child who's in a moment where they're not coping, please don't, don't, mm. um, just let that go. Just let mm. it go. <laughs> because that might be, you don't know what else has happened that day and, um, and they yeah. might not be able to cope with even when people sometimes say to me, what can I do to help? And I'm like, I can't, I don't have the energy. There's no time for this now. Right yeah. now. What you <laughs> yeah. could be doing to Just help. go away. <laughs> kind um, I think if you are physically seeing someone really physically struggling with a child um, uh, and you see that they're trying to also carry a bag, you could go up to them and say, can I help you with your bag? Mm-hmm. Because actually maybe that is something that you could do mm-hmm. um, because then they can concentrate on the person that they're trying to look after. Um, but yeah, the main thing I would say, I would say is feel free to offer help, but don't be offended if it's not accepted. <laughs> Once again, that's sort of looking <laughs> after in, other people and using all that yeah. energy. Yeah. But, and um, also but, uh, that people are different, I suppose that, and different people on different days. What, what also looks quite horrendous to other people is quite normal for us as yeah. well. So also if they kind of look at you and smile and say, no, it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. We got to <laughs> like, just accept that this is probably something that they do okay. weekly or daily and it's okay. And that no one's going to die and it's all fine, but they just need to get on with trying to help the person mm. they're supporting. Um, so, yeah. So also don't be surprised if they look at you like, it's cool. I mean, this is like, this is everyday life for us. We got it. Um mm. But in terms of like friends, if you have friends and people in your community who are carers, um, I would say it can be really off. 
helpful to offer specific help. Um, And and that's just a matter of paying attention. And it might not be that at first you might not know in which ways you can help. But one thing that my local friends have all been incredible at is helping me with my non-disabled daughter. Mm. Um, And because they can't always help with my son because my son doesn't want to necessarily be helped by them. But what they can do is, and it's things like, them checking in to see whether they can pick up my daughter on the way to that party so that I don't have to take my son out of the house to go do that Mm -hmm. or it's um we're all out together somewhere and um say for instance we are at a like party whatever in the park and um and my son is just not coping with being there any longer and so it's all it just needs is for someone to say don't worry we'll bring your daughter home it's fine we'll drop her home later if she's happy and she wants to stay, we'll just bring her home. So it's kind of um, just, I guess, watching and listening for ways that you might be able to just help on a logistical level that can help share the load. And I think my friends have all been really, really open to me asking. Okay. And you're okay with asking? Yeah. So it took a long time, but I think when my friends kept offering and, um, and saying that it's really not a big deal, we can just take her. It's fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, then I got better at saying things like, "Oh, so you know, so and so's party this weekend. Do you think you oh, could well do the yeah. off? We have to do the pickup." Um, and it's hard, but what I really realised um, was that um, it really does feel good to be able to support people in your community. It yeah. really does feel good, and I because I know it because you know, having received so much help myself, mm-hmm. I love to be able to help my friends with their kids when I can in the context that I can. And there is actually lots of things that I can do when my son is off doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly I only have one child who's, you know, very straightforward and I'm like, <laughs> I can take more. I can have more of them. <laughs> Bring um, me your children. <laughs> it feels so good. It feels so good mm-hmm. to be able to do that for other people. And I have had to over the years, remind myself how good it feels to be allowed to help other people to Mm. be given the opportunity to help other people so I think we need to remember that when we're asking for help Mm. that we're not just asking for something for ourselves it's not just for us we're giving our friend the opportunity to help us Um, and I think particularly when your friends and your community around you don't know how to help Mm. when you're giving them something specific to do um you're giving them something it's really really helpful you know it's Mm -hmm. a bit like saying when I don't know you have a new baby and you can say oh come over I just really need some company can you just come over and like Mm -hmm. talk to me because I want to talk to another adult like of course a friend would be like yes I can totally do that for you (laughs) I know what to do Uh, um, yeah. yeah I think being specific in asking for help and then um if it does get turned down for whatever reason because the person can't do it at that point not feeling like that's the last time you're ever allowed to ask for anything yeah okay Um, but it takes practice I think I think it really does I think in my sort of unlearning about asking for help and I still have to do it quite sort of consciously and say this is what I need and this is you know like this format and you're right people really really do want to help other people if given the opportunity and the direction and um and often and and if they can't it's not because they don't want to or they or you're Usually because there's some physical reason that something going on that exactly yeah that it's just not yeah. it's just not able to like there are so many times where I wished I could help but I can't because for instance you know I know for 
I, I can't really have other children in the car because sometimes my son can get upset okay. and a bit violent in the back seat. Okay. okay. And so it's not really safe for me to have other children in my car. Okay. So I can't like bring other kids home in the car. I mean, obviously none of us are doing that this past year, but just yeah. in terms of normal context of life when we're allowed yeah. to be in yeah. more spaces together. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I, but I can do other things. I can have friends. I can have people in my house. No problem. My son doesn't care if other my daughter has friends in the house. Yeah. So I could be like, hey, I can look after your kids that afternoon. No problem. But do you mind dropping Just them off? Get them here. <laughs> but yeah. get them here. Yeah. No problem. I can have them all afternoon. So okay. it's about then being specific, I guess, about mm. which ways you can help and which ways you can't. Just mm. to help the other person accept that help as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thanks, Penny. It was so, yeah, it's just so lovely to chat to you and, um, Actually, do you mind if I ask one more question? I'm conscious no, of our sure. time. Um, and actually, maybe it's less of a question, more of a comment. But I think that's what I also love so much about how you write and how you speak and how you um, interact with people is also there's something um, so full about the way that you are talking about life and that all of our lives are are messy in some way. And we all have different um, struggles and difficulties and, and some people far more than others. But that's... Um, about this productivity and about joy and about sort of engaging with life there is something also that has such an hopeful edge around how are you um, how are you going to enjoy this day how are you going to enjoy this life or how are you just going to engage with each other within um, this day or this life or this period and I loved so much when you spoke a little bit about I forget where it was in the book but just something about the way in which Arthur has slowed you down and made you look at the world in a different way and made you access um, moments of joy and even just sort of sensory activities and made you a lot more present and I love so much that you teach people about that, that our lives are not about productivity and who are we to say, you know, what makes a valuable and a, a lived life. Um, do you, yeah, do you have anything to sort of say about that or what are the ways in which you yeah. access that? Well, it's interesting because um, I think in some ways it's not so much that Arthur slows, has slowed me down I think it's more that he's made me um, intentional, more okay. intentional. Okay. So it's. Um, I don't mean slow down your life. I just mean like made you <laughs> look at things stop, in yeah, a different no, way. Sorry. Def- oh, yeah, no, no, definitely. But no, it's interesting because I think we do, I think there is a lot of conversation around slowing down and about, and I, I 100% there for that conversation. Don't get me wrong. I really, really am. But in some ways, I think sometimes the word slow is a little bit misleading because. Um, because for some people it's not going to be slower, but it is going to be about paying attention okay. and about being deliberate, I guess, and living mm. in a deliberate kind of way. Okay. And I think one of the things that um, in one of the say ways in which that has played out in our family has been mm. um, for me to just um, try not to get um, engaged in that, um, that uh, over overly scheduled kind of um modern family dynamic Mm. um and in a way i had always sort of meant before arthur was diagnosed to live in a very kind of quite um quite a quiet family life in a way and not have a million activities and stuff but it's arthur gave me a really legitimate reason not to in lots of ways Mm. (laughs) which is really really nice um because we just physically can't manage it. You know, yeah. we can't, my, da- my daughter isn't allowed to do five activities because um, I just physically can't get her to them. Mm. Um, 
and it's not possible. It's just not possible. And so um, in a way, it, it's, ha- it's, it's been really good to be uh, forced to not engage in some mm. of that really kind of frenetic modern living. Yes. Um, and travel is another thing. I, I traveled constantly before I had children. I traveled for work and also for pleasure and to go home to see my family and um, and it was really, really hard for me to come to terms with not doing that with Arthur mm. um, so much. But like I said, we we do go away a few times a year. We do things that are really suited to him and we stay very yeah. local. We stay in the UK. and um, and But in a way, that's been really nice. You know, I'm not going to get worked up about the fact that one year we can't afford to go on a big family holiday because mm. that's just not on our radar. You know, yeah. it's and it's also not that important in the context of our family. And it's been really mm. nice to, in a way, for some of the challenges that we've had to be able to reinforce the things that are maybe not so important. Um, and um, not that I don't worry about things like my daughter getting swimming lessons. I really do. <laughs> you know, there are some things that I'm still going to worry about, of course. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been almost like permission to opt out, mm. I would say. So like, wonderful. Like, yeah, it is. It's yeah. a real, and it's not always easy. Sometimes I get frustrated, like the swimming lesson debacle I've been having <laughs> over the last couple of years. But in a lot of ways, I feel like I do. I've given myself permission to opt out of a lot of things that I know mm. my friends struggle with constantly. Mm. Um one of those things, for instance, is, you know, our children are getting towards the end of primary school now. So lots of my friends' children are getting to that point now with their secondaries and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, the debate of whether to move to oh, find better secondary gosh. schools and things. And I'm like, oh, that is not even something I ever have to think about because my son's school is incredible and there's no way we can leave our borough yeah. because that would put that at risk. Yeah. So it's just off the cards. <laughs> we're staying here. off the cards. We're staying we here. <laughs> like, you know, unless like, yeah. we decide to move I don't know, back to Australia, which is not on the cards. But if for some yeah. reason we decided to do a big move, that would be, you know, one thing. Mm. But um, no, no, there's no choice in it. You know, mm. I think um, because we don't have, my son doesn't have all endless choices. You know, yeah. he can't just choose whichever school he goes to. Yeah. That's not on the cards. It's not how it works. Um, but, you know, also the fact that, you know, the fact that he's at such an incredible school is gold dust. You know, mm. these schools are not always accessible so to every rude. family. Yeah. Um, so um, we ca- I count ourselves lucky and my daughter will go to the best school that is within our reach and within, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. how the school system works. And it will be good enough. It will yeah. be good enough. Yeah. And so it's that I think having a child like Arthur has given me permission to mm-hmm. accept that some things will just be good enough yeah. and um yeah I mean that's not always it's not it's not like I'm totally zen about all those things all the sure, time sure. and there's <laughs> um, losses with that as well yeah but, are, I, but I think are. that's not railing against our circumstances and against our situations is is really such a gift that we is, create that very, sort of pain and turmoil for ourselves yeah at we times. do create a lot yeah. like some I some of the things I'm some of the angst that my friends have gone through making um, decisions about mm. houses and about, you know, neighborhood stuff. And, and what they're talking about is the difference between two good options. Yeah. They're just yeah. maybe slightly different good options mm. um, and creating a huge amount of pain for themselves trying yeah, to make those decisions. Um, so I don't want to 
make light of those decisions. It's not easy and we always want what's best Mm -hmm. for our children. But I think sometimes in this society that we live in now, which we have so much choice, we have a paralyzing amount of choice in a way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, don't have those same choices with my son and some of that is really difficult Mm. and some of it is very freeing it's both of those things yeah Yeah. again at the same time yeah Yeah. at the same time (laughs) (laughs) yeah gosh penny oh well thank you so so much i've just absolutely loved talking to you and i think i could talk to you all day could you just tell us a bit where people can find you so obviously your beautiful book um called tender the imperfect art of caring where else can people find you um, well, I'm, I tend to be a bit on Instagram. Um, okay. I've been a bit less on Instagram actually the last month, just with everything that's been going on, but generally that's where I'm, I'm e- the most easily accessible okay. and I'm just Penny Winsor on that. Um, and then my website, pennywinsorwrites.com and I have a newsletter as well, oh, which okay. you can sign up through, um, the, either you can find a link on Instagram or on my website. Um, and then the, and the, the newsletter really it's really not so much about caring actually it focuses much more on um on women and work and juggling the different demands in our life um and so it has a slightly broader a broader context um yeah so those are probably the easiest places to find me perfect thank you so so much such a lovely conversation thank you so much for your really thoughtful questions i hope you enjoyed that conversation with penny as much as i did you can find penny on instagram at at Penny Windsor, or you can read her wonderful book, Tender. I really recommend it. It's called Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. She also has a new podcast coming out, which is called Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller. And I think they're in the process of recording still, but you can find their introduction wherever you get your podcasts. Please also check the um, show notes for ways to get in touch with Penny. I hope you have a good week and I'll chat to you all soon. Thank you so much for being here today. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm on Instagram at grounded underscore families. You can send me a DM or a voice note to my DMs or an email. I'd so love to hear from you. Please do like, share and subscribe this podcast. It really, really helps to get the podcast out in front of more listeners. And I'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye.